Hello and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. And we've got a really musical show this week uh, and it's all completely unexpected. It's music from places you would never expect. I'm Rowan Hooper. I'm the podcast editor. And I'm Chelsea White, news editor. And joining us this week also, we have Sam Wong, our social media editor. Hi, Sam. Hi. Coming up this week, we have the most musical coronavirus update you're ever likely to hear on this show. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, And we also have musical spiders. But don't run away if you're scared of spiders. This is audio and you're not going to see any spiders or even actually hear the spiders themselves. But you will hear the beautiful music of their webs. We've also got a report that bolsters the idea that magic mushrooms can help with depression. And we've got a surprising finding from one of the oldest animal groups in the world. And also a robot that seems to have solved one of the biggest visual problems that have been thwarting robots. Yeah, it's been thwarting them. Uh, (laughs) Robots are no longer thwarted and uh, they're coming for us. Um, But before that, a word from our sponsor, Ryman Prize. Entries for the 2021 Ryman Prize are now open. The Ryman Prize is a £130,000 cash prize for the best discovery, development, advance or achievement that enhances quality of life for older people. It's a New Zealand prize, but it's open to anyone in the world who wants to enter. For details of how to enter, go to rymanprize.com. And we're back with time to quickly remind you, you can get 20% off a subscription to New Scientist if you go to newscientist.com slash Pod 20 to subscribe and get your discount. Let's start with some music. That's a, that is really quite spooky. What is that, Chelsea? That is how the vibrations on a spider's web sound when converted into music. So spiders are mostly blind, but they sense the world through the vibrations they feel on their webs. And a team of researchers at MIT has transformed those vibrations into music. So let's hear some more. Yeah, that's that's kind of beautiful and haunting at the same time. It makes me feel like there's a spider crawling on the back of my neck. <laughs> <laughs> what a nice image. It's about to bite you. Yeah, it is a bit unsettling. Yeah. So what they've done here is they've used laser imaging to make a 3D map of a spider's web. And then they assigned tones using a synthesizer to each of the strands, depending on the frequencies at which they vibrate. Okay, so the differences in the tension and the length of each strand are converted into different notes. And that's how you get the music. Yeah, that's right. And then longer strands are longer notes and the smaller strands are shorter notes. So they've made the strands that are more connected to each other louder and also left the other ones that are connected just to one or two other strands quieter. So there's one of these samples that's the sonification of a tangled web, which has lots of higher pitched notes that all sort of plink around together. To me, it sounds a little bit like horrifying circus music. (laughs) That genuinely makes me feel like I'm in a psychological horror movie. Uh, Some of them have a have a kind of background droning sound what is that and and does that correspond to part of the web as well sort of the researchers made this as a virtual reality experience so a viewer can kind of virtually travel through the spider's web and the longer that a person looks at a particular strand on the 3d web the more that note drones on (laughs) 
Is there a lot of demand for this as a virtual reality experience? <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I think I would be afraid of it, but yeah. maybe others would like it. It's a, certainly an interesting way to look at, a uh, to, you know, to experience a spider's web. Absolutely. Yeah. And it while I was, you know, editing this, it made me start thinking of spiders as tiny musicians. I never really considered that they were building a kind of harp when they make their their webs, but that's what it is. Yeah. I'm, I wouldn't say I'm going to rush out to buy the album on vinyl. But, uh, <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's different. But it is nice that it lets us experience the world in a, in some way as a spider might, which is an, a pretty awesome thing to be able to do as a, as a change of perspective. If a spider's listening to these vibrations, presumably it tells them when their prey gets caught in the web, but do they find out anything else or use it to communicate or anything like that? They can tell that when a prey has been caught in their web, but they can also sort of, you know, feel the wind and environmental changes and things like that. But I don't know if they're tapping out messages to each other. Um, this really does remind me of the Adrian Tchaikovsky book um, about spiders, which uh, we'll post a link to as well. I've mentioned it before in, the sh- in uh, Sci-Fi Alert, actually. And we'll put a link in the show notes to that and also to Marcus Bueller's SoundCloud page where he's got more of these music pieces. That's our sci-fi alert, which means there's something in the mag this week that's already been in science fiction. Rowan, what have you got? Uh, This is a robot that can catch a ball. (laughs) Impressive. (laughs) Hey, uh, it, it is actually quite impressive. Yeah. Okay. I was just joking. I'm sure it is. Um, I mean, I know that tracking an object and reacting quickly enough to catch it is something incredibly hard for robots to do. I mean, they can beat us at chess and go and other intellectual games, but they can't catch a ball. No. (laughs) But getting them to see in the same way we do effortlessly is really hard, right? Yeah, absolutely. So, but now they're getting there, right? So yeah, as you say, robot vision has been a real problem well, actually, this reminds me, have you either of you read the Katsuyo Ishiguru book, the new one, Clara and the Sun? Um, it reminds me of that because in that book, Clara is this very sophisticated robot and she's very empathetic and she can understand human behavior very well. But her vision is really weird. And Ishiguru describes that really nicely. I really like the way he describes this, this sort of robot weird vision. But the point of this story here is that We've always had trouble getting robots to see properly. And uh, one way to fix it might be to mimic, to get them to mimic the way our brains work. You mean like with an artificial neural network? Right. And that's what um, these researchers in South Korea have now done. And they've developed an artificial system that's capable of simulating a conscious response to external stimuli. Okay, simulating a conscious response to external stimuli. (laughs) You mean how we consciously decide to catch a ball that's thrown at us? Yeah, exactly. So as opposed to an unconscious response, uh, like, you know, snatching your hand away from a hot surface. So conscious responses might feel unconscious, like I will almost automatically catch a ball if you throw one at me. Um, But that's because the action has been practiced so often. And and what they've done with this artificial system is make it practice and hone the response over and over again. Okay, so what is the system? Right, so it's it's a photodiode which converts light to an electrical signal. It's a transistor which acts as a kind of mechanical synapse. Um, There's an artificial neural circuit, which acts as the system's brain, and then there's a robotic hand. And when a light is turned on, a ball is dropped from above the robot hand. Uh, The photodiode detects the light and starts reacting. And the idea is for the contraption to learn how to 
cup the hand quickly enough to catch the ball. And the whole process is kind of similar to the way our eye transmits electrical signals via synapses to our brain, which translates the signals, and then, you know, sends a signal to our muscles to move our hand. And all that happens really rapidly for us. I was going to say, it sounds really complex, but then what we do is as well. (laughs) Yeah. So, So this thing learned to catch a ball then, yeah? Yeah. No, so at first, uh, the, this thing was really slow uh, to translate the light signal into a decision to cup the hand, its robot hand, and it took 2.5 seconds to do that. But after it had been trained and exposed repeatedly to the light signal, it decreased it to like 0.23 seconds. So it's still quite slow, actually, but like much more rapid cupping of the hand. And the researchers say that this artificial neural system is, is imitating something like a, a conscious biological response. But that's still just um, catching a ball that's dropped from right yeah. above the hand, right? Yeah. So it's not, if, if I threw a ball Baby steps. at the robot from, from across <laughs> the room, it's not going to do the, the tracking and the catching like no. uh, like Chelsea said before but that we do. No, not yet. No, no, we're just getting there slowly, right? Yeah, so exactly. That, the problem is so difficult, you've got to really get there in baby steps. So it sounds like we're not going to have robot athletes replacing us <laughs> quite yet. Uh, <laughs> but no, this sort not. of thing, you know, what is it going to be used in? Oh, well, they say they're going to use it in uh, like people with neurological conditions um, who've lost control of or lost the ability to control organs and limbs. Um, that might help them with that. But, you know, there are I just can't help but think of, of like loads of robots that have got super rapid movements in science fiction. Um, well, does it remind you of any, Chelsea? My first thought is BB-8 from the recent Star Wars movies, but he actually is a ball. So I don't know that that actually <laughs> counts. <laughs> what about you? Well, I'm going to say the Nexus 6 robots in Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep by Philip K. Dick. And, uh, and you know, in the film Blade Runner, you obviously remember the bit where um, the Roy character, like, catches Harrison Ford mm-hmm. as he's falling off the thing. You know, he, yeah. and he's just got these super fast reactions. And But basically, that's what this hand is in, like, multiple generations time when the artificial neural network is just really highly trained. Time out. We wanted to tell you about a new podcast we've just discovered. Yes, this is The Conversation Weekly. It's produced by The Conversation's Global Network. So you know how The Conversation has academics from all over the world writing about their latest research? This is them talking about it. It's The Conversation in podcast form, and it covers a variety of topics, including science, environment and health. Yeah, the one I just heard was all about the latest results from the Large Hadron Collider by particle physicist Harry Cliff. Yes, it goes into all the details about the very latest uh, exciting but preliminary results and what it might mean for the new theory of physics. The Conversation Weekly is all about scholars talking about brand new research and about how the world works. Search for The Conversation Weekly or get it wherever you get your podcasts or go to theconversation.com slash new scientist to find out more. Now, Sam, you've got news from a new clinical trial looking at treating depression with psilocybin. Uh, which is a psychedelic drug found in magic mushrooms. Yeah, so there's been a lot of buzz about um, psychedelic therapy in recent years, but the studies we've seen so far have been um, small and most of them haven't had a placebo group to compare the results with. So it's sort of early days still. Yeah. Okay, but just to put this in context a bit, if people haven't heard about this, perhaps just tell us why you'd even want to treat depression by (laughs) getting people off their heads on mushrooms. 
Sure. Um, so, yeah, having having a psychedelic trip can be quite a, a transformative experience. So people, um, they get a sort of euphoria, but they also have what psychologists call ego dissolution, which means that their sense of self shuts down to some extent. And uh, with brain imaging studies, they've shown that psychedelics lower activity in uh, the default mode network, which is a collection of brain areas that make up our sense of self. And this network also seems to be overactive in people with depression. And that might be related to excessive rumination and getting stuck in negative thought patterns. So the idea is that taking psychedelics in a safe setting with psychological support might reset the brain and um, give a kind of long lasting relief from depression. Okay. And this week, we've seen the publication of the results of the latest trial into all this. So what's been done and what have they found? So this is a trial from uh, Imperial College London, and they've compared a group of patients with depression taking psilocybin with another group taking SSRIs, which is the class of antidepressants that's most widely used at the moment. Right, like Prozac is the probably most famous SSRI. But how do they do proper trials on this? Because, yeah, you know, psychedelics are super powerful hallucinogens. So you can't really do a placebo, can you? Because the patients will know which whether they've been given mushrooms or not. Yeah, so it, um, it's difficult. You, you can't make it blinded like a normal clinical trial is where, where people um, will have no idea which pill that they're getting. So what they have to do is, is they go through um, two completely different approaches to therapy. So with SSRIs, in this case, they were taking escitalopram. Um, you take a dose every day, and if it works, then after a few weeks, you feel a bit better. Um, with psilocybin therapy, you lie down in a treatment room with a therapist, you take the drug, you close your eyes and listen to music and you have uh, an intense trip. And in this trial, they had two treatment sessions, uh, three weeks apart, and follow-up sessions to provide psychological support. And did the SSRI group get the same support? Yeah, so they had exactly the same treatment, except on the psilocybin treatment days, they got a one milligram dose, which is so small as to be basically a placebo. And the psilocybin group got a 25 milligram dose, uh, and they took placebo pills every day in place of the escitalopram. And so what are the results of this? So after six weeks, um, 70% of people in the psilocybin group responded to the treatment, meaning that their scores on the depression test reduced by 50% or more, and 57% of them were in remission, which means their scores were so low that they don't have depression anymore. And in the escitalopram group, 48% of patients responded to treatment and 28% were in remission. So that sounds like a much better result for psilocybin, um, but the differences here are not statistically significant. There are only 29 people in the trial in total, so we can't say for sure that that difference is not down to chance. So hang on, if there's no difference between taking the psilocybin and taking the escitalopram, does that mean the psilocybin is just as good as the escitalopram? Or what can we actually say from this trial? Well, um, clearly we have to be cautious about interpreting these results because of the the small number of um, people in the trial. But at the very least, we can conclude that um, psilocybin compares favorably with established treatments for depression. So, and, and possibly there are there are benefits. So there were fewer side effects in the people taking psilocybin. The benefits occurred more quickly. And um, besides the, those depression scores, there were other outcome measures that looked favorable for psilocybin, like increased ability to feel pleasure and express emotions and greater well-being. So it, it, it's sounding positive, but basically, you know, we're going to need much bigger trials if we're ever going to get this, you know, if we're ever going to get mushrooms on the NHS. Or to put it another way, you know, how is psilocybin ever going to make a jump 
from these sort of quite promising, very small studies to something more rolled out and licensed. So there are biggest trials in the pipeline, and there's now um, quite serious investment going into psychedelic medicine. So um, there's a company called Compass Pathways that's um, raised a lot of money, and they're carrying out a, a large trial in Europe and North America. They're aiming to become the first licensed provider of psilocybin therapy. The Food and Drug Administration in the US has indicated that they consider it a promising therapy and they intend to make the approval process as smooth as possible. Um, so there are strong signs that it's moving forwards. And that's good news because um, SSRI antidepressants don't work for everyone. So anything we can add to the treatments available is well worth pursuing. Yeah, and it's worth saying that depression is a, a leading cause of disability worldwide. Uh, the World Health Organization says it's a major contributor to the overall global burden of disease. And antidepressants are some of the most widely taken drugs in the world. And as you say, you know, sometimes you get quite nasty side effects from them or unacceptable side effects, and, and sometimes they don't even work. So yeah, it's, I think it's really worth looking at alternatives. And by the way, don't try this at home. The researchers say patients with depression should not attempt to self-medicate with psilocybin. Now it's time for Life Worm of the Week, where we celebrate some organism we're feeling the love for. And this week, it's comb jellies, one of my favorites. <laughs> Is it? Oh, you should yeah. have done this. Comb <laughs> jellies. So uh, yeah, they're marine animals, uh, a bit like jellyfish, but not actually jellyfish. You probably get really told off if you call them jellyfish by marine Absolutely. biologists. Yeah. yeah. Um, so the name comes from the combs that runs along the outside of their bodies. Um, and each comb is a row of tiny tentacles that, that sort of propel the comb jelly through the water. And they're some of the oldest of all animal groups. So that means they were basically some of the first animals to evolve back in the day. Yeah, like back in the day, right? Yeah. yeah. Back in the early Cambrian, about 525 million years ago. Um, yeah. So yeah, as you know, Chelsea, there are loads of really cool things about these animals. But now we found that they have nervous systems that are unlike those of any other known animal because their neurons are oddly shaped and they use chemicals that, that are not found in any other animal groups. No offence to comb jellies, but do they even have a brain? <laughs> no, they don't have a brain. They won't take offence because they don't have a brain. <laughs> um, they've got uh, this like a thin net of neurons. Um, and as we report this week, scientists have managed to identify some of the neuropeptides that comb jellies use in their neurons, and 16 of them are completely unique. This is so weird, isn't it? Because neurons are so central to the animal body and to our whole way of being and so ancient that you'd expect the neuropeptides to be the same in all animals. Yeah. And so that's the major debating point that you've just touched on there among evolutionary biologists who are trying to decide which animal was the first to evolve. There's a big fight going on about it. No, it's my animal. No, it's my one, you know. <laughs> and, uh, and so, you know, and also when neurons evolved and when the brain evolved, um, and comb jellies are thought to be the first animals, even though they're not the most simple of all animals. We've got the whole story in this week's mag. We have to mention, surely, the um, uh, other thing we learned about comb jellies uh, in recent years, which is they have a transient anus. Uh, so their <laughs> anus only forms when they need to defecate and then it just closes up again completely. Uh, how could I have forgotten that? Thank you for pointing <laughs> that out, Sam. <laughs> Now it's COVID update time. As usual, there's a lot of coronavirus news this week. The U.S. has paused its program of vaccination with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine, again over blood clot fears. And in India, there's a really worrying increase in infections, even as vaccination is being carried out really rapidly there. 
Uh, you can read all about the latest in the magazine this week, but we wanted to give you something you've probably not heard before, uh, and that's the sound of coronavirus. Our reporter in Australia, Donna Liu, takes up the story. Thanks, Rowan. Yes, something slightly different this week. Take a listen to this. That, believe it or not, is the sound of the virus that has wreaked so much havoc around the world in the past year. It's a sonification of the SARS-CoV-2 virus, uh, a translation of the RNA that makes up the genetic sequence of the virus into musical notes. Uh, Its creator or composer is Dr. Mark Temple, a molecular biologist at Western Sydney University, and also, previously, the drummer for an Australian indie pop band called The Hummingbirds. Hi, Mark. Welcome on the pod. Hi, Donna. Pleased to meet you. Mark, tell us about the process of translating genetic code into musical notes. I've been translating biological sequence information into notes, and I make a linear run of musical notes. And I do that in a few different ways. You can look at a straight G nucleotide and map that to a musical note. You know, you look at G, A, Ts and Cs and you map them to whatever note you want. These are just to clarify the the four bases that make up DNA. Yeah, that's right. So we have the bases and we have musical notes and and they're two different things. So um, I'm talking about a G base and mapping that to a musical note. But what I also then do is map pairs of bases to musical notes. And that gives us 16 combinations. Because if you just map a bass to a note, you only get four musical notes and it gets very monotonous very quickly. So I'm heading towards the idea of looking at codons, which are runs of three nucleotides. And And that gives, there are 64 different codons, and that gives me a range of notes to map to. So at any point in time, I'm mapping individual nucleotides pairs of nucleotides and codons into musical notes. I then progressed to looking at the coronavirus genome earlier last year when I was at home, you know, looking for things to do. And the coronavirus genome is only 30,000 base pairs long. So it's tiny compared to the human genome. So you don't have that low-hanging fruit of repetitive sequences to play with. So what I did, I, I, I reworked all of the code and created additional layers of audio, and I tried to make it more musical. In terms of um, simplifying, I suppose, the, the actual uh, genome into these codons, these kind of groups of three bases um, that then code for specific amino acids, um, that then gives you quite a bit of a variety in terms of the notes that you can play. Um, let's take a listen to that now. This is a, a clip of um, some codons uh, being played out in translation. Mark, beyond creating um, a quirky piece of music, I guess, for for experiment's sake, uh, is there a scientific benefit to sonification? I I think there is. Um, As a geneticist or, you know, a molecular biologist, I I often spend time within um, genome browsers. So 
we, we have lots and lots of biological sequence information available to us as scientists, and we, we go to genome browsers to view the sequence. So a lot of pre-processing has been done of the sequence, and it's displayed in the browser, and you can investigate small regions or large regions of, of genomes. And there are lots of tools within the browsers, but the tool that doesn't exist is the tool that um, sonifies the sequence so that, you know, whilst you're looking at a small piece of the, the genome, you could also listen to that piece. And I think your ears can detect things that sometimes your eyes might miss, such as, you know, like the start and stop codons or, you know, mutations in repetitive sequences. And you can use some other tricks as well to clearly identify a coding sequence from a non-coding sequence, for instance. Thank you so much for speaking on the podcast, Mark. I thought we'd end with a bit of music. Um, I'm wondering whether you can describe uh, the clip that we're about to hear. Okay, so if you're about to listen to the the music that was made from the transcription of the coronavirus genome, because the genome has a poly-A tail on the end, first thing we read when we start playing the audio is a repetitive A sequence. So you'll hear this sort of do-do-do-do-do-do going on for you know, 20 or 30 bases. And then once that sequence is passed, you go into the more random sequence of the the genome. So the the beeps that you'll hear from the audio become a bit more varied. Um, I I match the drumming to the repetitive A's. So you get this repetitive drum pattern with with the A's. And that sets up a musical motive that we then start to repeat later on in the song. You know, so we started to structure the music based on our understanding of the sequence. And the music is not intended for analysis. The music is standalone and it's, it's trying to make something almost beautiful out of something as awful as, as the coronavirus genome. almost makes me forget what an absolute horror show this virus has been for the whole world. Uh, That was Donna Liu in Melbourne talking to Mark Temple in Sydney. And that's all for this week. Thanks for joining us, Sam. My pleasure. And thanks to you for listening. Just before we go, remember, do listen to our sister show, Escape Pod. Thanks, everyone. And also remember, as a valued listener, you can get a discount subscription to New Scientist get 20% off if you go to newscientist.com slash pod20 and subscribe. Goodbye for now and take care. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. This podcast is produced by Ollie Giyu Podcast Production. Find out more at ogpodcasts.co.uk. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. 